Hey, 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 what is going on, everyone? It is your boy, Bez, and I'm coming at you guys with Cube into A, episode three. For those that don't know, Cube and A is just a little spin on question and answer Q&A. Uh, you guys ask me your questions, and I'm here to answer them, so uh, without waiting any longer, let's just get right into it. First question I got was, why do you only buy single options most of the time? Okay, it might seem this way, but I actually don't. I actually, for one quick example, um, I own 30 call options on a certain stock, and they're actually pretty long dated, so um, they expire in January, and I, I purchased them like two months ago, so they were a good, you know, six to seven months uh, from expiration, uh, but speaking to the single call options or the single put options or, that you see, um, they're single because I don't like to take on too much risk, okay? If you guys know, and I keep saying it over and over again, I'm not a day trader, I'm not a trader at all. I, I rarely do um, anything of that sort. Uh, so when I do buy an option, I don't like to expose myself too much. If I think an earnings call is going to be good, or I see something technically where a stock broke its 50-day moving average or its 200-day moving average or it's oversold on certain key technical indicators like RSI or MFI or Williams and th things like that, then then maybe I'll just take a quick step in. Usually it'll be like 100 150 bucks, 200 bucks, which is a very small portion in comparison to the to the whole cube folio. Um, so that's why I do things like that. I like to, if I can make a quick few bucks and have some side cash on me for the weekend, great. Um, I'm not a full-blown options trader anywhere. I'm nowhere, nowhere close to that kind of uh, strategy. Um, so that's why you usually see just uh, single options being done. Uh, sometimes I'll take like, I'll do a straddle or do a strangle or things of that sort. But like I said, I'm not here to really expose myself too much. I am I'm very risk averse, uh, but I, I really like to keep my eye on um, on how much exposure I'm I'm pretty much uh, opening myself up to. So that's why you only see uh, single options. Uh, next question: XLRE is the best real estate uh, investment trust ETF. Prove me wrong. Uh, I would say this is probably a fair assessment. Um, you know, they own some top names like uh, American Tower, Crown Castle, Prologis, Simon Property Group, Equinix, uh, Public Storage, Well Tower, and so many others. Uh, the dividend yield's okay. Uh, some are lower, some are higher. It's around 3.12% last I checked. So the yield's okay, um, but it's more focused on growth. I mean, if you look at it, the, the ETF's up like 27% this year, outperforming just about every other re ETF I could uh, put my eyes on. But one thing I will say is that it doesn't own a lot of uh, REITs in the ETF. I think it's around 30 or 31, while others are in like the hundreds area. So uh, you can make an argument that diversification could be a little better, but I'd say that's, that's pretty fair. 30-something uh, is already a lot to begin with. You know, maybe 100 is excessive for some people, and I, I could see that argument too. But um, I, I would say that it's a, it's a damn good ETF. It's one of the best-performing ETFs. Uh, what is it, 0.13% expense fee, so, you know, relatively inexpensive, uh, to say the least. Uh, so, yeah, I would I would think that's a good one. You know, there, there's other decent ones out there, like, um, what do you got, uh, comes to mind. REIT, R-E-E-T, is a decent one, it has a little bit of higher yield. Uh, VNQ, Schwab's uh, SCHH, uh, so th th these are all good ones, uh, but I, I would I would agree with you. Uh, XLRE is probably the top, the top real estate investment trust ETF. So, um, go ahead and, uh, feel free to check that guys, uh, if you'd like. 
Moving on, worst investment ever. Okay, so this is an interesting question. I get it quite often. I don't know why everyone's obsessed with the uh, worst investment. Why don't you ask me what my best investment is? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, look, I've lost my entire investment on options plays. I've definitely had a few of those. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the worst investment ever. You see, a lot of people want to think about it in percentage terms, and it's important to, but it doesn't tell the whole story. What, maybe I lose max 350 on a uh, on an option? Okay, not the biggest deal. I mean, you have to remember, uh, there's a good possibility I was going to lose on that options play, uh, the entire thing, or I was going to maybe triple my money. Uh, and I, I like to take those odds, you know? So I'm not mad given the, the reward that might have been on the table. I've played plenty of options where I made 300, 400%, you know, and a, a ton of 200, 250 plus percentage gains. Uh, and the risk was you lose the entire thing. So I'm not mad about that risk reward, and I do it quite often. So that I don't consider as my worst investment ever, even though I lost 100% of the investment. I think where you really need to ask yourself when it comes to your worst investment ever is, um, what was the risk in regard to your portfolio? So when I was younger, much younger, we're going back like four years ago, maybe even longer at this point, uh, GoPro and FireEye were a pair of trades that just did not work out for me. I lost maybe 30% on each of them. And uh, I would say those hurt more because one... I really wasn't as aware of my strategy. I wasn't aware of, uh, or I wasn't really thinking so much about the weight of, in which it was in my portfolio, uh, which I think at the time was well over 20%. And, and that, that hurt. And that hurt. And it was also stupid because looking back on it, um, what was the reward there? Was really GoPro or FireEye going to double? No. Nah, they weren't. They were maybe good for a 10 to 15% gain, if that. And uh, thank goodness I dumped it when I did it because they both just kept going down and down and down. I mean, at the time, I think FireEye might have been $30-something dollars a share. And uh, GoPro was 20 Yeah, I think it was 20 And then I sold it, I think, at like 16 17 And what's it now, like 4 bucks a share? I haven't even looked at FireEye in a while. Let me pull that up real quick. One second. I'm actually pretty curious. Mm-hmm. FireEye... Yeah, 14.30. If I can look at this five-year chart real quick. Yeah, yeah. I owned it back in what looks to be late 2015 when it fell from 55 to 12. And I got in around the 30s, I believe, and I wound up selling in somewhere in the 20s. Something like that. It was so long ago. You're talking, you know, four years ago. Um, so, yeah, I would consider those my two worst investments simply because... The reward wasn't there like I thought it'd be, uh, and I should have known that better analyzing the trajectory of, of revenue and earnings per share and just the free cash flow burn and overall macro trends with regard to competition, uh, and also just the size of my portfolio it was. It just, the whole, the whole the two things just didn't make sense, and I thought I was buying dips. You know, GoPro fell from 100 to 20. I'm like, okay, let me grab this 80% dip. I've been patient, and uh, maybe it'll turn around. That wasn't the case. Same thing with FireEye. Didn't turn around. And these were like a lot of the hot names at the time too. So uh, I, I beat myself up for it sometimes when I think too much about it because it was just uh, not the brightest moves. But you learn, you live and you learn. You know, that was four years ago. And, you know, you just have to keep those ones in the back of your mind to understand like, hey, you know, this isn't, a, uh, this isn't the best moves you made, but learn from it and uh, avoid it going forward. What else we got here? Um... How many stocks to own in a long-term growth portfolio? Great question. Great question. I like this question. Uh, if everyone 
if anyone listening is a subscriber, then you know where my portfolio sits. It's definitely growth oriented. Um, and I, I like to say, look, if you're going to own its individual stocks, right? Uh, make sure they're diversified between small cap, mid cap, large cap. Uh, I would like you guys to at least at least own 10 to 15 names if you're going to be a full long-term growth uh, uh, portfolio. But the thing is, you can get away with a lot less than that. So, and what do I mean by that? You can you can purchase an ETF like IWO, which is a small cap growth ETF, or you can uh, grab uh, like VOG, um, which is a mid cap uh, ETF. Uh, you can do IWF or VUG, which are large cap growth uh, ETFs, and then you can add in your um, individual stock name. So in this case, it's not 10 to 15 securities in your portfolio, but uh, like directly, but indirectly it is because the ETFs own 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 stocks within that uh, ETF. So uh, essentially you could say, oh, well, I only own uh, two securities as part of my, as part of my growth portfolio. I'd go, okay, well, yeah, one of them better be an ETF. And then the other one maybe is a small cap stock or, you know, some other name you just want more exposure to that might not be in an ETF or one that not, not, not a lot of people, you know, know or own. So those are a few different ways you can go about it. So you see the funny thing about investing, and I'll, I'll just put this little disclaimer in here is that the answer usually comes down to, it depends. And I hate it, but that's why I try to give as many uh, specifics as I can. Uh, but yeah, I would say it depends. <laughs> but if you're just going to own single stocks, uh, don't make it two or three. Please don't do that. Um, it kills me. Uh, you know, As much as you're sold on the investment and as much as you believe in it, uh, things happen. And honestly, a lot of people underestimate the amount of, uh, or rather overestimate the amount of risk they can handle. You know, they think, oh, you know, if this thing moves 20 or 30% a day, I'll be fine. Uh, and then it happens. You're like, shit, I'm losing all the hair on my head because I can't take this. So be be mindful of that. And uh, and and if you're looking to expand your your growth portfolio, then, yeah, look look at some ETFs. Or if you've been experienced for a while and you're, and you're really sold on a few names, go ahead and add those in conjunction with that. Or go ahead and just add more of the... Uh, of the um, small cap or mid cap or large cap companies. This way you get a nice roundabout um, portfolio. And also do it in differing, excuse me, do it in differing um, industries, different maturities, all these kind of things. You know, you can go software, then you can go um, maybe pharmaceutical, you can go all, all sorts of places. So, you know, definitely play with how you want to allocate that because um, you do want to keep that in mind when you go about that. Play different industries, play different sizes of companies, so that way you're you're trying to get the most risk, the most reward you can for the risk you're taking. All right, let me turn the page here. What else we got? I'm old school, guys. You know that. I love my pen and paper. Uh, how old were you when you started investing and with how much capital? If you go back to episode one, I started my sophomore year of college. So what was I, 17 years old, 18 years old? Um, and I started with $1,000 and my dad did a one-for-one -one match. So I, technically I started with two grand. Uh, that did not last very long, to say the least. I opened an account with um, with UBS at the time. My dad's friend uh, was a broker uh, there, and he opened the account for us, and it was like a $100 startup fee and $50 cost for trades and monthly maintenance fees. The stocks we bought were so stupid, and, you know, it, it, it was just not a, uh, not a good time, but 
and I look back and I really do laugh because of how little I knew. And I, I know some of you guys are in the same position and, and that's a lot of the reason why I'm doing all that I'm doing is so you guys can avoid that. I wish I can go back and save myself a quick two grand, but I guess sometimes you got to learn the hard way. Uh, so yeah, I started at 17, 18 years old with a thousand. Dad matched that thousand. I wish Robin Hood was around at the time, but unfortunately it wasn't. Trades at the time were at least like 15 bucks, which wasn't that bad. But when you're only investing with a grand, two grand, it adds up. You know, you can't really do too much trading just to get in and out. It's 30 bucks. The options trading was way more than that, but I never touched options. Um, I, I didn't know enough. And if I didn't know how to buy and sell something, then I didn't touch it. So, so at least I had that covered. <laughs> but so that's the, uh, the answer to that question. Next question is a little more in-depth, a little more specific. Is the German economy in a recession? Technically, they're not yet. Uh, a recession is two sequential uh, declines quarter over quarter. All right. So like, for example, the in Q2, Germany reported a negative 0.1% uh, decrease in GDP year over year. If the next quarter is another decrease year over year, then they're technically in a recession. So two quarters of back-to-back negative growth year over year in GDP is the definition of a recession. So if Q3 comes in negative, then yes, technically Germany is in a recession. So why? You know, okay, great. I can tell you, right? But let me let me tell you why. I want to give you guys as much value as I can. And unlike a lot of people that want to uh, do podcasts, okay, and I'm not trying to jab at anybody, they just want to go off the top of the head. When it comes to this industry, when it comes to this kind of stuff, you cannot go off the top of your head. You have to know what the hell you're talking about. So here's the situation with Germany. Uh, a lot of it's stemming from broad weakness in just the Eurozone in general. Okay, growth is struggling. Draghi's, the, the ECB president is trying his best to get the uh, growth spurred again, get inflation at least coming back to life a little bit. It's just not happening right now. Okay. Another reason, point number two, car sales have not been that great. If you look at Daimler, if you look at Volkswagen, if you look at BMW, they're trading at multi-year lows, specifically Daimler and BMW. They're trading at over five-year lows. Uh, and this is because they're struggling, and, and it's it's for a couple of reasons. One, people are people are going um, uh, with a lot of the ride sharing now. Okay, people are seeing a lot less need for cars, especially in like city areas. Okay, that's number one. Number two, their biggest buyer, uh, or they're one of their biggest growth buyers, has been China, and they've reported car sales down for 13 straight months. So that's hurting their manufacturing sector because that's really what they rely on. That's their bread and butter, you know, exports, and that's been kind of weak. Uh, over the over the course of recent uh, quarters. So that's why we're seeing this. Now, I've read a lot of analyst reports and whatnot. They think it's just a trough. It's just a little uh, lull, and then it'll come back. Uh, I tend to agree with them, and let, let me tell you why. Uh, so unemployment rate's at 3% for, uh, for Germany. Freaking stellar. Labor participation rate is at 61.5%, which is just off all-time highs, okay? And f- what, what Germany's having a problem with right now is very interesting. They almost have like a shortage of workers. They have rising wages and the housing prices are rising pretty quickly too. So it's almost like um they just like were stepping on the on the pedal for so much and now they just that they I guess maybe redlined for a little too long and now they're cooling off a little bit. Cuz if you look across the board their economy is pretty healthy especially when you compare it to their counterparts in Europe. Okay, that's for sure. For example, average monthly wage in Germany Okay, I'll give you guys the best here. I'll give you guys the stats. 3,932 euros a month is what the average person in Germany is making today. 
it, if that's 3932 euros if we track it back 5 years to 2014 this was 3450 okay so the average german is making another 500 euros a month uh, in a span of 5 years that's that's pretty damn good that that's pretty good it's over 100 euros a week extra you know um so uh, and when you look at the youth employment, the youth employment is as low as it's ever been at 5.6% unemployment. So like, that's what I'm trying to get at, guys. They are, they're almost overworked right now. There, there's so many people at work, it seems. At least that's what the data is telling me. And uh, it's just somehow growth isn't, isn't there because it's really so reliant on the manufacturing. You know, manufacturing production... I might as well just lead into leeway into this uh, has fallen dramatically in the last uh, every month since November. In fact, manufacturing production has fallen uh, year over year. With the most recent decline uh, being six point one percent year over year drop in manufacturing production. So that was actually its greatest drop uh, over the last couple of years. So that's what's happening right now. People are worried. The, the trade tensions is really what is is I believe. Uh, pushing the story here and, and making people nervous. Then you have Brexit and you have all this other stuff going on. Just overall weakness across the board. People uncertain about fiscal policy. People uncertain about monetary policy. If you guys are not sure what fiscal and monetary policy are, please go back uh, maybe five, six, seven episodes. Check out that episode. It's a great one. Definitely jam-packed. So uh, that's really what it's coming down to. I've also read other articles that um, are talking about how a lot of this comes down to Germany's inability or inefficiency to allocate enough funds to communication, infrastructure, education, and now it's biting them in the ass. And, uh, you know, to be honest, when I think and I read of that, I do think of the United States in a, in a sense. I've mentioned it in other episodes as well, where I do worry about uh, the infrastructure in the United States and how that could prohibit productivity. I mean, think about it, guys. Uh, and I, like I said, I've never been to Germany. I can't comment firsthand, but I can definitely tell you about the tri-state area up here in, you know... New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Uh, we lose so much time working uh, just from transportation. I mean, it can take you... I live in central Jersey. It, once you get to that tunnel it, it, to get into Manhattan, it could, you could be waiting an hour, okay? Many of us here in central Jersey, a lot of my neighbors, we commute, okay? I don't do it anymore, I, I, but uh, they commute two hours each way easy so four to five hours a day in, in commuting okay and look you can say oh move closer to the city or go into the city look i get it it's not for everybody plus if you have a large family you've got to be making some serious bucks to afford living in brooklyn hoboken manhattan and, and the like and even in the city getting around is very tough the subway is like nails on a chalkboard delays left and right so um, we have a lot, a lot of work to do ourselves here in this, in the, in this, uh, same predicament here. And we're seeing that it's affecting Germany. At least that's what the analysts are saying. So this is a good rough, uh, rough little synopsis on what is going on in Germany right now. And, uh, it looks like they actually might in Q3, just because of the way the, uh, manufacturing numbers are coming in, that it'll be another negative, uh, you know, quarter as far as GDP goes, which would technically mark them as a recession. But uh, if things get patented up, you know, and and get a little better on the trade war side uh, and reduce a lot of this uncertainty, then we could be looking at a, at a bounce back. So uh, we should all be keeping an eye on on Germany for sure, uh, because it really is the lifeblood of, of Europe. Moving on, 
what is your opinion on FP&A jobs? Okay, I am assuming that you mean financial planning and analysis. Otherwise, I have no idea what FP&A means, uh, just from my finance background. I have many friends that are in FP&A. Here's the situation with it. Uh, and I'm, I'm noticing it's a trend. Uh, the jobs, okay, it's a good paying job. You, you'll make your 60, 70,000 a year um, as a as an analyst associate. You'll, you'll get up to like the low ones as a uh, MD, you know, and uh, ED, um, managing director, executive director. Uh, so it, it's a decent paying job. It's a good paying job. The problem here is that the JP Morgan's, the Bank of America's, they're starting to move a lot of these jobs out of Manhattan, out of, out of, the uh, Brooklyn area, you know, NYC Metro. For example, I know one friend who is in FPNA and uh, he's moving, they're moving his job to Dallas. Okay. Uh, others have moved down to Delaware and to be honest, some are going to India because uh, they don't need to be paying them. I guess they think that much money. They don't need to be taking up that much real estate in New York. So the roles themselves, I think are pretty safe. They, but they're moving them to other areas. So if you're asking this question, I'm not sure where you're coming from and you are in those areas that I mentioned, then yeah, I guess it would be a pretty good job. The hours aren't too bad. I know these guys, they, um, they'll they be in the office at eight, out at six. It's not too bad. Maybe around earnings season, they really have to push a little harder. But um, yeah, I would say that it's, uh, it's a decent job. It's kind of boring, if we're being honest. Uh, every day is virtually the same. Um, I would also go as far as to say I wonder how blockchain will affect some of the um, some of the jobs in those roles that could be pretty wide um, widespread and so you know technology AI blockchain things of this nature could affect the industry a little bit and um, and I, I do think though over across the board though that the roles are important uh, it's just a matter of lack of mobility. If you do get caught up in an FPNA role for many years, it's going to be tough to get out of it. Uh, you won't be able to make the transition to front office. Um, and even though you'll have a lot of talk with the front office, you won't really be able to make that jump into it. Um, so the people I know, it's just another job. It's nothing fulfilling. Maybe you're different, but you know me, I'm going to tell it like how it is. And this is how it looks like to me. So this is what I've been told. This is uh, the nature of, of the of the industry itself. So take that for what you will. I am sorry I didn't sugarcoat it and tell you it's an amazing job. I just do think it's just a normal job um, that just will pay your bills and, and go from there. All right. Um, and the last question I have here, some new investment trends. I already mentioned a couple of them, guys. So uh, obviously you have the cannabis industry, which is, you know, starting to take shape. And it's still a little uncertain of where that wants to go. Uh, you can look at the blockchain industry. You can look at clean tech, green tech, insure tech, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things. These are things me and the Cubefolio and the members of the uh, of the Cube family are always looking into. The members and I are always talking about these trends, where they're going, what's the best way to play them. Um, and you know... Uh, there are ETFs you can use to play a lot of the robotics industry, you know, cybersecurity, different types of cybersecurity. There are so many ways to play this uh, and, and to really slice and dice it and get involved. But, you know, you also have to be careful uh, about being too early on certain industries. They can just take too long. Look at the people who have been in solar for how many years now. It hasn't really worked out too well. 
it hasn't, you know? And that's just one example. Uh, it, the people who were investing in those over-the-counter marijuana stocks, they had to wait a long time. And I'm not even sure a lot of them even took off. A lot of those stocks that really took off are, are these newer names that all of a sudden hit the market. Um, so, you you know, everyone's so quick to get into these new industries now because we're just sharing information so much more about them. But you do have to be careful that you don't get in way too early because dead money sucks. Dead money really sucks. I've been there. It's it's really, especially in a bull market, oh, it really sucks when your stock is staying flat, not moving much, and others are taking off because there's an opportunity cost. But those are some new investment trends I would look into. Um, obviously, if you want to know more about how individually I'm looking at them and what I'm actually investing in, uh, definitely feel free to subscribe, guys, and we can talk about that all day. Um, so these are the questions I got for Q&A episode three. I hope you guys got a lot of value out of it. And uh, if you have any more questions, guys, I'm always down to do more of these. I find them great because it kind of gives me a little uh, sense of direction. So, And I get to help you all individually, which I'm always a fan of. So, guys, I hope you enjoy. I will catch you on the next episode.